I'm Barfirst. And I'm Rebecca Caho. And you are listening to a brand new season of Rural Roots, a Harris Center podcast that asks, what is rural in the 21st century? Season three. Did you ever think there would be a season three? No, not in a million years. This is post-conference idea that we thought might be worth trying. And those post-conference situations where you're all full of ideas and you're all excited and raring to go, generally you just get off the airplane after you come home and they die right there, then and there. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> somehow you push past that moment. And I kind of get the feeling it was kind of Ryan Gibson's fault. Yeah, ultimately. everything's Ryan's fault, of course. Uh, he's a researcher now at uh, University of Guelph. Uh, at the time, he worked in Nova Scotia. He got his PhD here at Memorial. We were friends. And I got to know, he is a farm boy from Manitoba. He is. And uh, we were at this rural conference in PEI, and we had beers after the conference, and we kind of thought, oh, this is great. We caught up with all of our friends, and we know who's doing what, but nobody's ever going to hear about this because it's so hard to take this research and actually put it in front of people who could do something with it. Yeah, and so the podcast was born. And so the podcast was born, and uh, we brought you along from the very beginning. Uh, it was kind of, um, I don't know, prescient moment, <laughs> uh, because you actually named the show. You're the Rural Roots godmother. Yeah, well, as someone who grew up on a rural route, it was pretty easy for me. Um, but this was all just supposed to be an experiment, right? You only had a year of funding. Yeah, we got this grant from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, and it was for a year. We had a student. We had a little bit of travel money. And you sat in your office with the door shut with this weird little microphone on your desk. And That's right. Nobody was really paying attention. <laughs> nobody was paying attention. Uh, we had no production schedule. There were no production values to speak of. Uh, there was no marketing, no promotion of the podcast. Nothing. But that said, the content was great. The content was really good. And that's pretty much the only thing we ever had going <laughs> for us. But luckily from there it grew. The radio station started carrying it. Uh, we heard that people were using it in classrooms at universities across the country. And there really was nothing quite like it going on elsewhere. And there still isn't. That's the thing that gets me. There was so much demand for this. People would call and say, you can't stop doing this. We are now listening. We are playing it on radio. And uh, it was obvious after the first 15 episodes, the show needed to grow up. So you joined me as co-host. We started recording interviews here at, um, at the studio. Uh, and it all got much, much better. Yeah, and that's a really important part of it. We're here now at CHMR, the campus station here in St. John's at Memorial University. And we've also got a great partnership with the National Campus and Community Association, which is helping us get played across the country. Mm -hmm. And also, we have so many plans for the future. <laughs> yes, we sure do. So, season three. Yeah. Well, we're going to bring you, as always, rural stories from all across Canada and from around the world. We're going to talk about rural media, about how technology is changing the way that we do things in rural places. We'll talk about new approaches to rural medicine, about forest fires, about the business of having babies in rural and remote Canada. And we are going to have a show about tourism. We'll bring you that part two of the National Parks episode we promised last season, looking into the indigenous access to protected lands. We are going to have a show about small islands, which is near and dear my heart. We're going to talk about social enterprises. It's going to be great. 
Perfect. So, on to the first episode of season three of Rural Roots. Boop, Okay, like a no sound effect. <laughs> uh, this one is actually all yours. What are we going to talk about? Well, we're going to start on a serious note. Uh, we're going to talk about what happens when people are forced to work a long ways from home and, and how that affects their, their communities and also their families who are left behind in those rural places for long time periods. And that's all part of a really big research project here at Memorial, right? Yep. Uh, Dr. Barb Neese, a sociologist at the Faculty of Social Sciences and Humanities here, is the lead on a huge international project looking at long-distance commuters and how that work affects them, families, and their communities. We're going to take a look at a couple of the different components of that project. And in fact, you think you know what I'm talking about, but the number of different elements that play into it. Um, I went to a conference in PEI uh, this May, and I was I was quite shocked at the breadth of what was talking and what they were talking about. But for this episode specifically, we're going to focus on the impact long distance commuting can have on families. Okay, so who are we going to hear from today? We're going to hear from Christina Murray, from Don Avery, and from Kevin Ryan. They're all from PEI, and also Holly LeDrew and Pam Moores from Newfoundland and Labrador. I recorded all of those interviews in May at, at the, the event that I just mentioned. It was a research symposium at the University of Prince Edward Island. Okay, awesome. So where do we start? Well, let's start with Christina. She's a nursing professor at UPEI, and she's also a public health nurse. She was living in Calgary when she became interested in what was happening to families of long-distance commuters. I started hearing a lot in the 2000s about people leaving here for work. And so, but leaving their families behind. And so my father was talking to me about that a lot. And then I had a sabbatical year in Calgary. So I was teaching at that time. I had kind of been still in practice, but got into nursing education at the university out there. And came back, uh, tried life in a very rural fishing community. And there I heard about uh, many people whose husbands were leaving. So my daughter was in a pre-kindergarten program and well over half of the children's fathers after Christmas had gone out west. That's interesting, but I do think that would be a very familiar story in many rural communities, especially here in Atlantic Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, and and in, in different industries, of course. But uh, yeah, you're right. These days, Atlantic Canada's got to be one of the sort of primary hubs for that kind of a story. But that said, Um, She points out herself, it's actually a story that's been going on for a long time, and even in her own family. Intergenerationals. My grandfather ran. My grandfather and his brothers left from where we are in Charlottetown, an hour and a half. Uh, They had left by rail car and went by rail car from rural PEI to South Alberta to work on farms, caught wild horses, (laughs) broke them. Slept with them, watered them, brought them back to PEI by rail car, and sold them. Yes. And that's what got the family farm going. Right. And and that, and so when I look at my own family history, mm-hmm. you know, my my grandfather did it with his brothers when they were young. Then they came back. He had the Alberta bug. He took my grandmother, my dad. They kept going. They kept coming back. My dad got older into the workforce. Him and his brother went to Alberta. I graduated nursing school. Off I go to Alberta. Um, and now my parents are in, Al- in Alberta. Right. So my parents are in Fort McMurray. So I look back and I am a product of three generations of this migration. That's a really interesting way to think about it. I don't actually think I ever heard anybody talk about it in mm. those terms, that we are 
all in many ways a product not just of the place where we live and work but of this long history of movement yeah i think you're right i think that a lot of families could trace this kind of a history now it may not involve breaking horses uh, and on the prairies and carting them True. back across canada on a train <laughs> but movement has been uh, a primary factor of just of the way that canada has been settled certainly so yeah it's not necessarily new However, Christina does believe that things are changing quickly these days. What I think has changed right now is the fact that we've got technology on our side and we've got mobility. We've never been as mobile as we are in the globe as we are right now in terms of transportation. So years ago, if you left, you were gone and you stayed. And if you, you know, you might have moved and the whole family would move. Or you'd meet somebody there and you'd be, that's your home. You're in Toronto, you're in Boston, you're wherever. Now, with flight patterns and the way the world works... I mean, you can literally, I do a lot of international travel. I can be in my house with my kids on a Friday evening, and I wake up in the morning, I'm in London, and three hours later, I'm working in Germany. Yeah. Do you know what, like, I mean, just the way the globalization has happened. So what is happening to families when one of the partners works away for a very long period of time? Well, Christina spent quite a bit of time interviewing people on PEI and on Cape Breton Island, the first thing that she found out is that there are essentially two things that drive people to accept this lifestyle. And you can probably guess the first one. It's all about the money, honey. It's all about the money. No one leaves unless you need to. And it's all about the money. All right. That's pretty clear. Uh, what about the other reason? Well, you can probably guess that one, too. As a re- resident of Newfoundland and Labrador, it has to do with the nature of employment in many rural communities, especially in Atlantic Canada. Seasonal economies drive mobile work, mm-hmm. and, and that's that's just kind of a, a fact of life for us here in this island and mm-hmm. your island and Cape Breton Island and you know any places where you have those seasonal dependencies and precarious employment. It, it's, it's a feeder to this kind of world. All right, that, yeah, I could guess that. I always found, I understand why people move. I always found the question of why they decide to stay Mm -hmm. to be a lot more interesting. Because in some ways you think that, you know, moving everybody, whatever the work is, Mm -hmm. would actually be easier. And that does still happen a lot. I mean, uh, you know, I'm I'm a rural Ontario transplant married to Newfoundlander. And uh, in his family, for example, there are people who, uh, who have done a bit of commuting, but by and large, it's mainly been a matter of leaving this place and starting afresh uh, in the West. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess for people who do decide to stay, that sense of identity, and people have such a strong sense of belonging yeah. to this place, it's just it's so strong, I think it's actually hard to understand for people who don't live here. Yeah, I think that's definitely a factor. Uh, and also, Christina points out that the decision for a family to stay behind is actually quite rational. In many cases, even if the people move to the province where the work actually is, let's say Alberta, things for the family probably wouldn't be all that much different. And in fact, it might even be harder. You have that push-pull factor and and it's now like, okay, we're going. But what are we as a collective we going to do? So is it better for all of us as a unit to uproot our children, move to a place we don't know, where chances are you're not going to see me much more than you are now because I am going six hours north to work. And, and so that is really a lot of the reasons why people, from my discoveries, have decided to stay. Yeah, that 
totally makes sense, right? And if they moved, they would also lose the supports built in around the community and the extended family that they have in this place. Exactly. Assuming that they have those. Those supports can be tenuous. Things can change. If a lot of the people in your community are leaving, then the supports are weaker. And also, uh, the fact is that being the partner who's left behind just can be really, really hard. So there's, you know, the incredible amount of loneliness. Mm. Overwhelmed. Overwhelmed loneliness, depression. You don't have a lot of adult time. Sometimes you've got great supports, but you don't want to call on them all the time because you don't want to overtax that resource. You don't want people to think that you can't handle it all. You don't want people to think that you can't manage your kids because then that always goes back to, oh, he's out there working. If he was home, she'd be able to control the kids or they'd be able to control them. Kids are running wild because dad's away. Um, like Even things of, you don't want people to think you can't do it all. Yeah, that's such a thing not letting people think that you can do it all. Hmm. And I, li- I, I guess I did live in small maritime towns and I know that it can be, you know, it can feel like under you are under surveillance. Yeah, there are, there are positives and negatives to it, but there can be the sense of being in a fishbowl. Maybe people are more likely to notice when you need help, but they're also going to notice when you're struggling. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, Christina described some of those situations and how that feeling can lead you into isolation. They purposely self-isolate because people are always talking about them as a family and not talking in a, in a positive way. So you're upset, he's gone, you're lonely, you get the kids to bed, you have some time, you're vegging, you're eating chips at night, and you put weight on, wedding rings don't fit anymore, you go to work and somebody sees you, you don't have your wedding rings on, well, is your husband out working? Yes, he is, well, why don't you have your wedding rings on? What are you trying to do when he's away? Like, Then somebody had told me about running into an old friend that she hadn't seen in years. They were so close. He was a guy. They met up at Tim Hortons just by fluke, had a hug. Next thing you know, somebody's text. Her husband's texting her, who are you with? Somebody had watched her, texted her husband in Fort McMurray and said, you better watch your wife. She's here hugging some man at the Tim Hortons. Whoa. Yeah. I don't even know how you would ever navigate something like that. It sounds awful. And uh, this is all going on at a time when the relationship would already be under stress because of the separation. So it's intense. Um, And I mean, there are elements of human nature there. This isn't a rural thing any more than it's an urban thing. Uh, However, Christina did mention that there does tend to be a lot of envy related to improved material situation for the families who are working away. Because we are talking about communities where, uh, where incomes don't tend to be that great. So you notice when someone starts having, you know, a nice truck or an ATV, etc. Like, oh, it must be nice for you guys to get the new windows. Must be nice. Like, look, okay, you got it. Like, look at them driving around a $40,000 truck, mm-hmm. you know. They could have got something. Like they could have got like an old whatever secondhand vehicle, and he'd be home. Don't complain to me that he ha- he's not here for the birthdays and the Christmases. And don't complain to me that you're overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. We're sitting here mm-hmm. working. That's your guys's choice. Mm-hmm. So so this whole thing about tremendous amount of judging and what I've heard over the years of what people actually say out loud to people, it makes me like, it, like literally there have been points where my stomach is turning. Because I, I'm like, I can't believe, I can believe somebody would think it, but to physically verbalize this to your face. Yeah, so you get the, you get all of that wrapped up together and you get 
financial circumstances and community circumstances and that kind of gets all wrapped up with consumerism and capitalism and money and you can imagine uh you know this sort of creepy morality and gossip that can happen it can be really damaging all about infidelity like this question of faithfulness in your relationship how faithful are you and it's this whole, you're a woman and you wait here and you, you know, how faithful are you really? How, what do you think he's really doing out there? This whole questioning your, your commitment to your marriage, the commitment to your relationship. It just makes me think about, uh, you know, here in St. John's we have the uh, various spots that are like considered lookouts where in the past women would have looked out and watched for the ships and there's this Oh, this like gothic novel, Jane Austen vibe, <laughs> you know, and it seems like women are still contending with that sort of like uh, across the moors, creepy, dark judgment thing. Hmm. Just, whoa. I mean, I grew up in, I grew up in Eastern Europe, so everybody knows about the three old ladies sitting in front of the neighborhood and making sure that everything's the way it should be right so that kind of surveillance in small communities it's kind of a local sport it's a fact of life it's a fact of life it provides some good things in terms of safety and you know the kids are playing out and somebody's always watching all of them but i think part of it is so we've talked about how there can be history of migration but the scale we're seeing and the impact it's having on these communities it's more than in the past. This is a disruption in it some is. ways. And, and it's such a it's such a oxymoron because it's allowing some of these communities to continue because people can can be there and can live and pay their mortgage, etc. But it also is it's so disruptive to the community too. Where is all this coming from? What do you mean? It's just I don't know, it just seems Maybe I'm just naive and I imagine these rural communities as kind of close-knit. Mm. But I guess from that being close-knit comes this other side as well. I think, I mean, I think that there's going to be good and bad in all of these situations. Yeah, yeah. And probably in any of these communities, we could go and do five stories on really nice things that people are doing for each other. But, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, individual psychology and people wrestling with their emotions and their feelings and and it's just it's really deep psychological stuff really it's it's your deepest fears and and your worries for your family it goes deep Mm. yeah and and, i mean when i was doing interviews for my own research you know somebody said the best thing about living on a small island is that you know everybody and the worst thing about living on a small island is that you know everybody yeah And we've got this issue. It's socioeconomic issues that have been present in in this part of the country and in other parts, too, and within other communities uh, in rural Canada for a very long time. I think it has to do with rurality. I think it has to do with... We live in cultures of poverty, but we don't call it poverty. Mm -hmm. We just call it... That's just how it goes here. We live in the culture of poverty where it's okay to be on ER. Mm -hmm. We don't have a lot of work, so that it's, it's... that's the norm because we just don't have it. We don't have industry here. We don't have mega paying jobs for tradespeople. Mm-hmm. And so the people that I have spoken with are all people who are laborers. They're laborers, they're tradespeople. That's their that's their ticket to get them out. So even when they try to come back, 
there's either not full-time job or the job is minimum or barely above minimum wage. They're not treated well by their employers. So a lot of things I've heard about how, you know, some employers work their employees 14, 16 hours a day and barely give them a thank you or a bottle of water, like, and no appreciation for the work. So they've been out there, great money, great opportunity. Doesn't matter if you got a grade eight education, if you didn't complete high school, you have opportunity to advance in a job that gives you benefits and a pension mm -hmm. and really great money. Mm -hmm. And so what happens then though is, well, it was good enough for us. We're all here, we're right. all making it go. You know, don't complain to me. He had a choice. We're all sticking it out. Mm -hmm. We're still working at wherever. Mm -hmm. We're still getting by. Yeah, and you know, this is all happening in something of a policy vacuum. Uh, there's very little in the ways of formal support offered uh, to the people who are working away or to the families who are left at home. Why well, wish people could come together and understand this? Mm. The people don't, this happens in our life every day. I care for these people every day, and I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to best care for them. Nobody teaches this in, in our training program. We don't do professional development in this. No one understands my life. No one understands what it's really like to be left behind for weeks at a time. And then he comes back and everything is all, the routine's all out the window. And I, our family's trying to grow. And we're not divorced. And I'm not a single mother. But I live like I'm a single mother. Like, like all of these dichotomies. And and uh, so we heard it like over and over. I just wish there's a way we could all bring people to the table. And that's the hard part. There is really no one to turn to for help, no. right? Hmm. We haven't even talked about things like addictions that sometimes come with this kind of work yeah. or any other issues around long distance commuting, issues that go way beyond personal relationships yeah. and sort of normal hardship if there is such a thing. Yeah, you're right. Formal supports are basically missing, as Christina pointed out. And even frontline healthcare professionals are not necessarily trained to help people experiencing a wide variety of mental health issues that, that can actually be related to this kind of work. That said, in some cases, and because of great challenges and difficulties, some people are starting to organize themselves. And that's the next story that I'm going to share with you. Don Avery is a member and organizer with the Grandparents Raising Grandchildren group in Charlottetown, PEI. I thank the grandmothers that come to those sessions. They're not obligatory. They're not. I mean, if you want to come, the support is there. I st I'm still getting new grandparents as, as we speak today. And and when you ask them, um, you know, why did they come? Uh, because they they're afraid to talk to their families. They don't want to talk. They don't want to tell their families that, you know, I'm looking after my grandchildren. They don't want to tell their neighbors. They don't want to tell their friends. So they begin to become isolated. They be, they're in isolation. And I am a big big proponent of of not, not having people work in isolation because it doesn't work. So that's kind of what this what this group is for. Mm, that's hard. And we've seen that issue on Buren Peninsula here where yep. both parents sometimes tend to work away. Yep. And, uh, you know, we'll get a little bit further into Don's story, but also the idea of influxes of money uh, coming to rural places and the potential that that has to bring drugs, too. Um, yeah, so... There are other reasons why grandparents may find themselves raising their grandchildren. 
So we're, we're, we're going to listen as Don shares his personal story. The reason why we're doing it today with the grandparents is because the biological parents of those children at one point in time were out west. Okay? The family broke up for whatever reason. Um, and part of that family came back to PEI. We're seeing that in many, many cases. My own personal one, I look after a great-granddaughter. Okay, that's another level, and the, that family um, fell apart. Okay? My own, not my own personal, but was still my family. That fell apart, so the mother of the, the granddaughter is still out west. Okay? Uh, she came back to PEI with a baby. Um, became addicted. Uh, her and her partner have separated. Uh, we ended up in court. Uh, cost my wife and I about seventy grand. You know, thirteen thousand bucks to take it to court. That must be so hard. Is it a common story? Well, unfortunately, it is. Here, Don will explain what that pattern looks like. The younger ones that go west, like my granddaughter, who would have been 18 at the time, and the boyfriend would have been 18, went west. When a young kid makes three grand a week, and that's a lot of money, didn't know what to do with it. So you know what happens. I mean, I hate to say it, but but the the bad people that that were within those communities prey on those people. That's where the money goes. And, and it's very easily addictable. So the drug of choice, they tell me, in, in northern Alberta is, say, cocaine. That's not cheap. You know? But if you've got three grand in your pocket, you know, somebody's going to take that three grand pretty quick on you. And then when they move back to Prince Edward Island, that all, all that craziness comes with them. You know? And then... And then we're such a small province, and the supports for that on this island are very, very poor. You know, that's the other thing. This, this group must be so important to mm. people who are in it because there's really nothing else. Yeah, yeah, it's really important to the people who are who are participating, and they're bringing resources to the folks who are attending from law enforcement, lawyers, mental health experts. And they're just sharing their experiences and the struggles that they're dealing with every day. But all of it is really hard. They're very much on their own. And that's something that Don talked about, too. My own personal case with my granddaughter, um, she's clean for about 70 days in a program called Strengths, where they teach them, I mean, they just teach them life skills all over again. She's 21, mentally maybe 17, you know. You know, when she dropped out of school, and I think it was, it was, that was the skip generation, what we call the skip generation, she just happened to be a part of it, and we didn't really understand what that skip generation was, now I do. Um, How do we fix it? It's a big, it's going to be a big, it's going to be a big um, thing to get fixed, you know, but I would like to be able to get some supports. Uh, from the province, but the province doesn't have the supports to, because there's so much of it uh, that they don't have this, they just don't have the resources. Mm-hmm. How do you get, I don't know, I don't know. So there's one more story from PEI that I wanted to share. 
mainly because it's quite a different story from the two that we've heard so far. And it comes from a guy called Kevin Ryan. I know it's easy to judge. I've done it myself. We estimate our own worth compared to somebody else. A brother who's down on his luck might be out of hope. You're at the end of the day, he's at the end of his rope. So, Kevin's a musician. We just heard a little clip from his most recent album. You should definitely check it out on iTunes. He's great. Um, He's also a nurse, and that's kind of a new development. Um, But in the past, he had traveled around a lot and had eventually ended up working in Alberta. Everything was okay until his son Seamus was born. In 2009, getting back to Seamus, the economy crashed, and there wasn't much activity that following winter in 2009, 2010. And I was, I went out for my, worked for my company as a bus driver, taking the crews to and from the the fields. Uh, And that's when I had to leave Seamus. And where where were he and your wife living at that point? In in our home in in Prince Edward Island. We had just built a new house. And that required um, these things called mortgage payments. And that's not, you're not going to stop that train, uh, whether it's a downturn or not. Uh, Luckily, I was able to find this work, and I needed that work. That's for sure. Um, But it did take me away from Seamus and my wife, Marcella. Um, And that was uh, a very difficult winter. Because so, all these years that I've been going here, there, it was uh, there was no consequence to that. But it's like, wow, I've got a little little guy here. You know, that's the part we actually don't talk a lot about at all. Are there any supports for those who are in the field actually working? Very little. Um, and what's there is certainly incredibly informal. I suppose it depends on what kind of crew you're on and the and the the makeup of that crew, um, how family-oriented they are, if they, if they do have family. Uh, a lot of that work is, uh, is a sort of a young person's game, right. so that might not be a factor for a lot of guys. Mm-hmm. And I say guys, I'm sorry, but it, you know, it's, it was primarily male that were out there. Uh, support network, no, I wouldn't say there was much of that. Mm-hmm. Like there was camaraderie mm-hmm. and uh, you you know you could find people to talk about life with but yeah. uh, I suppose to your crew you know if you get on a good crew you can you can talk about whatever so what did he do well he moved back to PEI uh, and that transition was hard and they're still struggling and figuring it out and working through it all. But now he's a nurse and things are much easier. We built a house in 2009 when our son was born. And uh, we uh, live on a very nice uh, property in, in the South Shore of PEI. We're able to rent that 
out in the summertime mm-hmm. at a at a good uh, Innismore Beach House. Uh, InnismoreBeachHouse.com. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, anyway, um, that's that allowed us to kind of consider how we might transition. We considered uh, businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were considering uh, my my wife as a history of being a flower designer and manager of a prominent store uh, Winston Flowers in Boston we were looking at opening a store but it, we needed to find something uh, that was definitely uh, the goal was to was to transition from the, the migratory yeah. lifestyle and I kind of discovered nursing and I say discovered uh I didn't realize that there was this accelerated type of nursing stream that you could do, which if you have a previous degree, you get to do it in two years as opposed to four. And, you know, that stage in life, I can't, uh, couldn't imagine have taken four years out of the workforce. So there we are. It, uh, it, made, it made it possible. It was a struggle, but we did it. found in the place where you live. Baby, when the storm comes down Glass houses are the first to give You know, we heard from Christina, a researcher who told us about some of the issues women who stay behind face. We heard from Don and the support group he is a part of for grandparents raising their grandchildren. And then from Kevin just now, who is struggling to break the cycle of mobile work so that he can be with his family. And there is sort of this common thread of just lack of support and just just loneliness that comes from trying to solve these issues on your own. Please tell me the next story offers some solutions. Well, we've got you're you're in luck, boy, because uh, that's where we're going with the next little uh, batch eclipse. When I spoke with Holly LeDrew and Pam Moores, they both work in Newfoundland and Labrador on the island part of the province. Holly is the regional manager for communicable disease control with Eastern Health, and Pam teaches community nursing at the Western School of Nursing at Grenfell Campus in Cornerbrook. They met there while Holly was teaching. So what Holly noticed is that there's a whole new problem that the nurses working with her were dealing with. I worked in St. John's before going to Cornerbrook, and um, I was the manager for public health nurses, and I had nurses coming to me telling me that Um, they were seeing kind of a new uh, demographic in these women that they went to visit. Um, They had everything, but their husbands were absent. And they weren't single parents, but they were solo parenting while their husbands did the commute work. So Holly and Pam really wanted to understand this better, and they were particularly interested in new moms. Of course, that would be one of the most stressful times as a parent, so I can only imagine that things got so much harder with one partner being away. Oh my gosh. Well, as the mom of a four-year-old right now, my husband was uh, in Labrador for a week last week, one week, and by the time he came back, I was exhausted. And that's with someone who can walk and talk and use the washroom on their own. <laughs> I can't imagine with a, with a newborn. It would be so hard. But the cool thing is that And just like in PEI, just like Christina told us, these women and new moms were really eager to talk with the researchers. 
We had some very rich conversations. Um, you know, they were very happy to share their stories because it was a source of validation for them. They didn't feel that mainstream society really understood this lifestyle and they were very happy to, that we were giving them an opportunity to explain that it was different and that it was challenging. So we heard things like, um, you know, I'm lonely all the time, um, that sometimes, you know, when he comes home he messes up the routine. Um, you know, we heard that, you know, we heard some women say they had to give up their jobs. We heard women say that, you know, well, I'm not giving up my job, but it's super tough. And, you know, I have to use my sick leave and my annual leave and everything. And so I'm not advancing very well. You know, I can't get a haircut because there's, I don't have anybody to look after the kids. I can't go to the doctor. We, um, but we heard also women say, you know what? This is the life we've chosen, which we're just going to have to make it work. We're partners, we're a team, and um, we can do this. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, I would imagine they encountered some of the same issues that women on PEI talked about. But there seems to be somewhat, almost like a little different attitude towards the whole thing than mm -hmm. what we heard uh, about on, on PEI. Yeah, and I guess you have to remember that in Newfoundland, this is really nothing new. A lot depends on individual communities and how they organize their supports, whether it's through individual connections, which do run deep in this province, but do in most of Atlantic Canada too, in fact, and rural places in general, uh, or through church or service organizations. Um, and a lot of it came down to developing empathy and communications and understanding between the partners. They, they spoke of... Um sometimes using words like the word resentment sometimes would come up in a conversation but they they would say you know I feel this way sometimes yeah. you know and yeah. uh, and frustration and and you know who are you gonna take it out on someone that you're close to and that you love you know it's easier to do that um, there were some moms who you know I just have to put myself in his shoes he just worked 12 nights 14 nights or 12 14 hour days flew you know six hours seven hours on the plane or you know even further, mm -hmm. time zones, he does have to go to bed for two days before he can really be a parent again. So yeah. that understanding, mm -hmm. that empathy mm -hmm. was really important. So I think that was something significant about the relationship. If that stayed, that was probably a mitigating factor for that communication that needed to happen. But it was the piece of getting used to this person again. Some noted that they were almost like a stranger in their home after being gone for five months, six months. You know, you can imagine how difficult and the readjustment of that. So the emotional cycle of leaving and going and leaving and going, you know, has its toll. And, and some of them had really thought it through and some of them didn't, you know, we had women say to us, we knew what we were getting into. He's always done this work. I knew what we, he did it when we were dating. I knew what, what it was about. So... You know, this is all we've ever known. And, you know, we're, we're okay. We make it work. Holly and Pam also mentioned that in the Newfoundland context, it seemed that the women were really quite career-oriented, even though they were solo parenting for a good part of the year. And the other thing I found very interesting in our study, because when we went to the literature to see what research was out there, we found there was lots of research in um, Australia and um, but a lot of the moms um, in the articles we read 
didn't seem to be career women, and a lot of our participants were career women, and so they were juggling that extra piece. In Australia, it was like, well, you know, I'm a bit bored. He's gone away for two months. I'm a bit bored. Maybe I'll get a little part-time job just to keep me busy. Well, our mothers were like, okay, I'm doing my master's. I got a full-time job. You know, he's gone for two months. I got, you know, two kids under three, and, you know, mm-hmm. it's like I can't drop any of these balls. Wow. Yeah. And they worked so hard to get that education that they didn't, didn't want to give it up. You know, yeah. want to lose sight of it. And mm-hmm. sometimes they put it on hold temporarily mm-hmm. or planned to because keeping in mind now, I mean, a lot of our parents hadn't gone back to work yet mm-hmm. because they had under one year old, right? So they yeah. were on maternity leave. Yes. So the, they talked, some, some of them talked about yeah. the plan to return to work. So it would be very interesting to find out how that's, because that's another layer, you know, but the ones that were going back to work or had gone back to work. Um, struggled very much with the fact that they didn't have um, extra leave. You know, they had to use their sick time, their family leave, their vacation time to cover off things that partners sometimes could have helped with. Um, so it's, uh, and the advancement, of course, you know, not being able to go out of town to do a seminar, professional development, take that course that's going to take all the time from their parenting piece. Um, so it did restrict and kind of, um, you know, hold them back. Now, that is super interesting. Mm. And I would imagine that supports in that kind of environment matter even more. Did they talk about that? Yeah, I asked them about the importance of the the community support element, and the answer was pretty clear. Absolutely. 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 We've seen that so clear um, in the early stages of our discussions with moms. Something simple like having your neighbors also having partners who commute had that network uh, of, you know, I'm having a bad day, I'm going to go over or she's going to come over and see me take my kid for a little while, that type of thing. Um, But also the fact of just taking care of one another. So when someone's partner is home, he knows that two doors down, her partner is away, so I'm going to clear her driveway. And then when I'm gone, he's going to do the same thing. So it's that trade-off piece. Uh, we had one lovely story of a, a little boy, probably, you know, 10, clearing off his neighbor's car in the morning because she had to get to work, you know? And that sense of community was just, you know, very nice to hear them talk about that. You know, to make this work even remotely for families and partners and communities, there's just so much missing. Individuals and community groups are building some supports, obviously. I mean, what else are they going to do? But all of it seems to be disconnected and piecemeal, and it doesn't really meet anybody's needs, really. And never mind how I feel about the whole idea of this work that's exploitative in so many ways. Yeah, I know what you mean. You know, going back to Christina, you do it for the money. Uh, And you wouldn't do it otherwise. When it comes to the lack of support mechanisms for families, there's just so much that's missing. Uh, With all this research and the whole On The Move project that Dr. Barbnice is leading, we're learning more about what is needed. So Pam and Holly are going to talk a little bit more about those next steps. We certainly want to, um, you know, bring this forward to... Um, public health nurses and their managers and, you know, our organizations across the province. But, uh, you know, being here and making these connections with the On the Move partnership and and that sort of thing as well will help inform, you know, the, the bigger picture, the bigger policy uh, um, papers and that sort of thing, I think. 
And we also uh, had the opportunity to present uh, twice at the National Community Health Nurses of Canada conferences. Um, so at that uh, table, there are people who are in management, uh, practice, you know, frontline, and education around public health nursing. So that hopefully will get some buy-in because that's what you need, you know, to push it forward and have that position. And, and Holly's right. I think this this um, symposium is going to be the be, be the beginning. And I think we're going to learn that there are some governments and some provinces that have started to move towards important benefits and support networks and policies around the support that's necessary to move uh, this forward and to recognize the the life that these people are leading and how. Uh, how difficult it is, how challenging it is, but how important it is for our communities. Because otherwise, you know, the financial stability is not there either yeah. in our communities. Wow. Thanks for um, doing all these interviews. Uh, I mean, I, I, it's just so complicated and it's so deeply personal. Yeah, and we haven't even really scratched the surface here. This is kind of your 101 primer <laughs> on the topic. The impacts of mobile work and long-distance commuting are huge, not just on families and on individuals, as we've discussed here today, but also on communities in general. Yeah, and the, imp the, the range of those impacts is huge. I mean, some of those communities are completely dependent on the income that's coming in yep. from those um, from mobile work. And both the host communities and the communities that the workers come from are dependent on yeah, it in many ways. totally. Right? And then there's the whole issue around who's going to run the volunteer fire department, the local service club, who coaches the hockey team, if half of the population of working age is gone for most of the year. Yeah, so obviously we're going to talk a lot more about some of those issues in this season, season three. And for now, uh, let's close this episode. Today, we talked about long-distance commuting and impacts such work has on families. We heard from Holly Ledru, Pam Moores from Newfoundland Labrador. Yeah, and from PEI, we heard from Christina Murray, Don Avery, and Kevin Ryan. This was the very first episode of Season 3 of Rural Roots, a Harris Center show that asks, what is rural in the 21st century? It's still unreal that it's Season 3. Number three, the big three. <laughs> rural Roots is a partnership between the Harris Center, the Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation, and the Rural Policy Learnings Commons Partnership. We record the show here at the CHMR Campus Radio at Memorial University of Newfoundland in St. John's. You can hear all of the episodes of Rural Roots through our website, ruralrootspodcasts.com. That's rural, R-O-U-S. TESpodcasts.com. Or you can find us on your favorite podcasting app. You can also hear us on community and campus radio stations across the country. If you'd like your station to carry rural routes, just let them know and they can find us on the campus and community radio program exchange or they can get in touch with us directly. So that is the end of another episode and the start of a whole new season. I'm Rebecca Cahal. And I'm Brian Fierst. Thanks for listening. See you next time.